Chapter Twenty Three A of the Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln by Francis Fisher Brown. Chapter Twenty Three A. Lincoln's home life in the White House, comfort in the companionship of his youngest son, little Tad, the bright spot in the White House, the President and his little boy reviewing the Army of the Potomac, various phases of Lincoln's character his literary tastes, fondness for poetry and music, his remarkable memory, not a Latin scholar, never read a novel, solace in theatrical representation, anecdotes of Booth and McCullough. Of the two sons left to Lincoln after the death of Willie in 1862, Robert, the older, was a student in Harvard College until appointed to service on the staff of General Grant and little Tad, or Thomas, the youngest, was the only one remaining in the White House during the last hard years. He was ten years old in 1863, a bright and lovable child with whom his father was associated in constant and affectionate companionship. The boy was much with him in his walks and journeys about Washington, and even in his visits to the army in the field. The father would often gain a brief respite from his heavy cares by sharing in the sports and frolics of the light-hearted boy, who was a general favorite at the White House, where he was free to go and come at will. No matter who was with the President, or how intently he might be absorbed, little Tad was always welcome. It was an impressive and affecting sight, says Mr. Carpenter, an inmate of the White House for several months to see the burdened President lost for the time being in the affectionate parent, as he would take the little fellow in his arms upon the withdrawal of visitors, and caress him with all the fondness of a mother for the babe upon her bosom. Hon. W. D. Kelly, a member of Congress at that time, says, I think no father ever loved his children more fondly than he. The President never seemed grander in my sight than when, stealing upon him in the evening, I would find him with a book open before him, with little Tad beside him. There were, of course, a great many curious books sent to him, and it seemed to be one of the special delights of his life to open those books at a time when his boy could stand beside him, and they could talk as he turned over the pages, the father thus giving to the son a portion of that care and attention of which he was ordinarily deprived by the heavy duties pressing upon him. Tad lived to be eighteen years old dying in Chicago in 1871. It was well said of him that he gave to the sad and solemn White House the only comic relief it knew. When President Lincoln visited General Hooker's headquarters with the Army of the Potomac just before the Battle of Chancellorsville, little Tad went with him and rode with his father and General Hooker through the grand reviews that were held. Over hill and dale, says a member of the presidential party, dashed the brilliant cavalcade of the General-in-Chief, surrounded by a company of officers in gay attire and sparkling with gold lace the party being escorted by the philadelphia lancers a showy troop of soldiers in the midst or at the head rose and fell as the horses galloped afar the form of lincoln conspicuous by his height and his tall black hat and ever on the flanks of the hurrying column flew like a flag or banneret tad's little gray riding-cloak the soldiers soon learned of Tad's presence in the army, and wherever he went on horseback he easily divided the honors with his father. The men cheered and shouted and waved their hats when they saw the dear face and tall figure of the good President, then the best-beloved man in the world. But to these men of war, far away from home and children, 
The sight of that fresh-faced and laughing boy seemed an inspiration. They cheered like mad. There were various phases of Lincoln's character, as manifested during his life in the White House, that afford material for an interesting study. It has been said of him that he lacked imagination. This was certainly not one of the faculties of his mind which had been largely cultivated. He relied more upon the exercise of reason and logic, in all his intellectual processes, than upon fancy or imagination. Still, there are often striking figures of speech to be met with in his writings, and he had a great fondness for poetry and music. He had studied Shakespeare diligently in his youth, and portions of the plays he repeated with singular accuracy. He had a special liking for the minor poems of Thomas Hood and of Oliver Wendell Holmes. Dr. Holmes, writing in July 1885, says that of all the tributes received by him, the one of which he was most proud was from good Abraham Lincoln, who had a great liking for the poem of The Last Leaf, and repeated it from memory to Governor Andrew, as the Governor himself told me. Mr. Arnold says, he had a great love for poetry and eloquence, and his taste and judgment were excellent. Next to Shakespeare among the poets, his favorite was Burns. There was a lecture of his upon Burns full of favorite quotations and sound criticisms. His musical tastes, says Mr. Brooks, who knew him well, were simple and uncultivated, his choice being old airs, songs, and ballads, among which the plaintive Scotch songs were best liked. Annie Laurie, Mary of Argyle, and especially old Robin Gray, never lost their charm for him, and all songs which had for their theme the rapid flight of time, decay, the recollections of early days, were sure to make a deep impression. The song which he liked best, above all others, was one called Twenty Years Ago, a simple air, the words to which are supposed to be uttered by a man who revisits the playground of his youth. I remember that one night at the White House, when a few ladies were with the family, singing at the pianoforte, he asked for a little song in which the writer describes his sensations when revisiting the scenes of his boyhood. Dwelling mournfully on the vanished joys and the delightful associations of forty years ago, it is not likely that there was much in Lincoln's lost youth that he would wish to recall, but there was a certain melancholy and half-morbid strain in that song which struck a responsive chord in his heart. The lines sank into his memory, and I remember that he quoted them as if to himself long afterward. Lincoln's memory was extraordinarily retentive, and he seemed, without conscious effort, to have stored in his mind almost every whimsical or ludicrous narrative which he had read or heard. On several occasions, says Mr. Brooks, I have held in my hand a printed slip while he was repeating its contents to somebody else and the precision with which he delivered every word was marvellous. He was fond of the writings of Orpheus C. Kerr and Petroleum V. Nasby, who were famous humorists at the time of the Civil War, and he amused himself and others in the darkest hours by quoting passages from these now forgotten authors. Nasby's letter from Wingert's Corners, Ohio, on the threatening prospects of a migration of the Negroes from the South, and the President's evident intention of colonizing on him in the North, he especially relished. After rehearsing a portion of this letter to his guests at the soldiers' home one evening, a sedate New England gentleman expressed surprise that he could find time for memorizing such things. "'Oh!' 
said Lincoln. I don't. If I like a thing, it just sticks after once reading it or hearing it. He once recited a long and doleful ballad, something like Villikins and his Dinah, the production of a rural Kentucky bard, and when he had finished he added with a laugh, I don't believe I have thought of that before for forty years. Mr. Arnold testifies that, although his reading was not extensive, yet his memory was so retentive and so ready that in history, poetry, and in general literature, few if any marked any deficiency. As an illustration of the powers of his memory may be related the following. A gentleman called at the White House one day, and introduced to him two officers serving in the army, one a Swede, and the other a Norwegian. Immediately he repeated to their delight a poem of some eight or ten verses descriptive of Scandinavian scenery, and an old Norse legend. He said he had read the poem in a newspaper some years before, and liked it, but it had passed out of his memory until their visit had recalled it. The two books which he read most were the Bible and Shakespeare. From the Bible, as has before been stated, he quoted frequently, and he read it daily, while Shakespeare was his constant companion. He took a copy with him almost always when travelling, and read it at leisure moments. Lincoln was never ashamed to confess the deficiencies in his early education. A distinguished party, comprising George Thompson, the English anti-slavery orator, Rev. John Pierpont, Oliver Johnson, and Hon. Louis Clefane, once called upon him, and during the conversation Mr. Pierpont turned to Mr. Thompson and repeated a Latin quotation from the classics. Mr. Lincoln, leaning forward in his chair, looked from one to the other inquiringly, and then remarked with a smile, "'Which, I suppose you are both aware, I do not understand.'" While Edwin Forrest was playing an engagement at Ford's Theatre, Mr. Carpenter spoke to the President one day of the actor's fine interpretation of the character of Richelieu, and advised him to witness the performance. "'Who wrote the play?' asked the President of Mr. Carpenter. "'Bulwer.' was the reply. Ah, he rejoined, well, I knew Bulwer wrote novels, but I did not know he was a playwriter also. It may seem somewhat strange to say, he continued, but I never read an entire novel in my life. I once commenced Ivanhoe, but never finished it. Among the few diversions which Lincoln allowed himself in Washington was an occasional visit to the theatre, to witness a representation of some good play by a favorite actor. He felt the necessity of some relaxation from the terrible strain of anxiety and care, and while seated behind the screen in a box at the theatre, he was secure from the everlasting importunities of politicians and office-seekers. He could forget himself and his problems while watching the scenes on the mimic stage before him. He enjoyed the renditions of Booth with great zest, yet after witnessing The Merchant of Venice he remarked on the way home, "'It was a good performance.' but I had a thousand times rather read it at home, if it were not for Booth's playing. A farce or a comedy is best played. A tragedy is best read at home. He was much pleased one night with Mr. McCullough's delineation of the character of Edgar, which the actor played in support of Edwin Forrest's Lear. He wished to convey his approval to the young actor, and asked Mr. Brooks, his companion at the moment, with characteristic simplicity, do you suppose he would come to the box if we sent word? Mr. McCullough was summoned, and standing at the door of the box in his stage attire, received the thanks of the President, 
accompanied with words of discriminating praise for the excellence of his delineation. With his keen sense of humor, Lincoln appreciated to the utmost the inimitable presentation of Falstaff, by a well-known actor of the time. His desire to accord praise wherever it was merited led him to express his admiration in a note to the actor. An interchange of slight civilities followed, ending at last in a singular situation. Entering the President's office late one evening, Mr. Brooks noticed the actor sitting in the waiting-room. Lincoln inquired anxiously if there were any one outside. On being told, he said, half sadly, almost desperately, "'Oh, I can't see him! I can't see him! I was in hopes he had gone away!' Then he added, "'Now this illustrates the difficulty of having pleasant friends in this place. You know I liked him as an actor, and that I wrote to tell him so. He sent me a book, and there I thought the matter would end. He is a master of his place in the profession, I suppose, and well fixed in it. But just because we had a little friendly correspondence, such as any two men might have, he wants something. What do you suppose he wants?' I could not guess. And Lincoln added, "'Well, he wants to be consul at London. Oh, dear!' End of chapter 23a. Recording by Bill Borst.